Jim, thank you very much, and thank you, Father Newman, for hosting me again. I like it down here very much. And as Tim said, at least as I heard the introduction, uh, that Robert Riley has published wildly. <laughs> he may have meant widely, but saying that I published wildly is really a more accurate description of what I do. And when people ask me, well, wh why, why are you writing about such a different array of subjects? And my answer is, well, it's whatever I get angry about. <laughs> and that usually, that's not enough, being angry. Then you're just being Irish. That, that doesn't solve anything. <laughs> so it then requires a lot of work to try to master the material that it's necessary to understand in order to make some cogent remarks about what's wrong and what's right. Well, I remember growing up in the 50s. And um, I don't know what my, whether my memories are a movie I saw about that, uh, and this is real, or whether that was real, and this is just a nightmare. <laughs> because it's very hard to believe. Very hard to believe we're in the same universe. It's changed so uh, fundamentally and, and for the worst. Things you couldn't imagine or even didn't know about. Uh, Tim mentioned my book, Making Gay Okay, which, of course, you have to give the subtitle immediately, How Rationalizing Homosexual Behavior is Changing Everything. As we've seen, it, it has been doing. Some priest friends of mine, when they're reading that book on, on a plane or a train, they don't know what to do with the jacket cover. <laughs> it, sort of, the person next to them begins a conversation, then looks down and sees it, and that's, that's the end of the contact. Um, but actually, it was my then teenage daughter who named that book. Come on, Dad, it's about making gay okay. And, and most assuredly, it is and has been. And my oldest son is a US Marine Corps officer, and it's infected the military in a major, major way, as has the transgender nonsense. Um, so things have degenerated far beyond what anyone had anticipated, and with a rapidity we couldn't have anticipated. I am addressing in this book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding, some of the attacks that are being made from our confreres, from Christian conservative intellectuals, who one thought should ought to be defending the American regime, not undermining it. But uh, they are. And in a way, it's no mystery because the worse things get, the more desperate people are <clears throat> for an explanation. What's the cause of this? Who's responsible? And the answer they arrive at is, well, it's actually the American founding itself 
that is responsible, that the principles on which this country was founded were radical enlightenment principles of individualism uh, embedded in, uh, well, they'd even say the Declaration of Independence instantiated in the Constitution. And the only thing that held off the full expression of these notions of enlightenment radical individualism was the fact that the United States was such a thoroughly Christian nation. So nobody noticed for the first 150 years. But then the strength of faith began to recede. The American people became more secular, and up there we see uprising uh, the notions of radical individual autonomy coming to dominate public life and being articulated so clearly in places like the Supreme Court by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who speaks of this so-called autonomy uh, often in the, he's off the court now, but in the uh, seminal decisions he made, uh, which found in the Constitution in the Texas case, a constitutional right to sodomy. I, I've read the Constitution. I don't see it's what? Where did you get what? It's in a penumbra in there somewhere. You see, the same place where they found the right to abortion. So now you have a right to these consensual homosexual acts, but said Justice Kennedy, this in no way means or needs to lead to homosexual so-called marriage. But Justice Scalia was also on the court and said, oh yes it does. The logical progression of this makes homosexual marriage inevitable. And sure enough, 10 years later, we get the Obergefell decision and uh, now there is homosexual so-called Marriage. Now, Kennedy finds this radical individual autonomy in the Constitution somewhere. These conservative Christian Catholic thinkers find the radical autonomy there. The difference is Kennedy embraces it. He likes it. And the scholars about whom I'm talking who say, yes, it's there, deplore it but they're left with empty hands and Kennedy is left with full hands. But no disagreement over the source that it comes from the founding itself. Well, I wrote this book in contestation against that idea that it ain't there. Read the founders, follow the genesis of this country uh, look at the education the founders had. Uh, look at the writers whom they cite, uh, and about what uh, you know. What the, and of course, most importantly, what they did as statesmen to give us this great country. And uh, there's no there there. I use two thinkers, Patrick Deneen, a very nice fellow and a very fine scholar, great teacher, who was at uh, Georgetown and had the good sense to leave that benighted place. <laughs> I, I'm an alumnus, so I can speak freely <laughs> about the portrayal of their mission. It's uh, very bad. 
to Notre Dame, which hasn't, I'm just about, it's just about there in, during its mission too, but there are pockets in Notre Dame. Uh, so he's teaching there, but his, uh, well, I will refer to his teaching on the American founding. I use Patrick Deneen's work and um, another scholar, Michael Handy, who's at the John Paul II Institute in Washington, and both of them have their writings frequently in First Things Magazine. And um, Hanby says the founders made a metaphysical state, a mistake about being. They got being itself wrong. And Hanby says the founders uh, made a anthropological mistake. They got who man is wrong. Uh, together, if you get being wrong and man wrong, uh, you're, there's, there's hardly anything that you have not gotten wrong. Now, the, the crux of this thing, the fulcrum on which everything turns, uh, by the way, Tim, can I wander up here or is there a mic that I, I, I've got to stand at the fulcrum to use? So stay here. Um, and that crucial issue is the primacy of reason or the primacy of force in life, in political life. In uh, the great debate in the Republic between Socrates and Thrasymachus, Thrasymachus says, right is the rule of the stronger. Whatever the strongest says, that goes. Why? He has the power to enforce. So there's, it doesn't address the content of whatever laws the strongest person would institute uh, because that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that he has the power to do it and will do it. So right, whatever he says is right, period. The other side of the fulcrum says, no, no, um, the primacy of reason reason as it apprehends the rational order in the world and comes from the divine reason in a hierarchy of being that we're subject to divine law through natural law. Through the natural law, we apprehend with our reason what is right and wrong. And we are obligated to abide by that natural law, why? Because we have a telos, a, a purpose. Not that's given to us, it's inbuilt in our being. And if we live according to that natural law, we will reach perfection. We will flourish as human beings. And if we don't, we won't. And the sine qua non of that natural law is, for each of us, the life of virtue, 
which is the foundation of happiness. Now, that was almost universally agreed to among the ancients, not the, sophists, not the sophists, but the philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, um, that a life of virtue was indispensable. In fact, Socrates, uh, Aristotle said you can't even uh, philosophize unless you're virtuous. Why? Because if you have a vice, you're ruled by the vice, and in your thinking, uh, your thinking will be skewed because you have to find in reality some justification for the vice in which you have engaged. So you're not free to see things as they really are. The only free person is the virtuous person. Now, I'm, I'm really jumping ahead here because that, as we will see from the American founders, be it Franklin or Jefferson or Madison, or especially John Adams, they will say repeatedly, the foundation of the republic, the thing necessary for the republic to survive is the virtue of its citizenry. And as Washington said in his farewell address, oh no, inauguration, first inauguration address, there is an indissoluble unity with virtue and happiness. So the founding of the United States wasn't let's get the orgy going, let's all do whatever we want, let's get the drugs, the pornography, serial marriages, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no, it wasn't. Your freedom was uh, contingent on the virtue in your life, as was the existence of the very republic. Well, that's about it. Any questions? Well, you know, I, in, in this book, I try to, I try to show that the precepts necessary for an American founding, the ideas that make it conceivable have a very long lineage and without which there would not have been such a thing as the American founding. And since I'm already through so much of my time, I, I better scamper. You're pointing at me, Tim. Do you want me to leave the stage? What? Oh. All right, plenty of breakfast food, so we'll be here for a while. All right, well, I begin in the pre-philosophical world, in, in the world that was called barbarian. Uh, why was it called barbarian? I mean, the pre-philosophical world, say, of the 8th century BC. Why was it called barbarian? Uh, because the people at that time did not have the means by which to recognize another person as a human being. Why not? Because they didn't have philosophy. Let me sketch that out a little more for you. People lived in tribes. The head of the tribe had some special association with the divine, indeed may be divine himself or semi-divine. Only he knows the, the words of the 
the magical prayers that can be said to the gods uh, to effect a good harvest or victory in battle. You, as a member of this polis or this tribe, have no access to the gods. Your participation in religious life is as being a tribal member, and it is the head of your tribe, who is not only its leader, but its chief priest. Uh, you're nothing outside your tribe. You follow the ways of your father, just as the, the other tribes follow the ways of their fathers. And they have different ways from your ways. Now, tribal life uh, was typified by very frequent, if not constant, warfare. And in this warfare, it was typical for the victorious tribe to slaughter all the men in the losing tribe and enslave all the women and children or kill everyone. And it wouldn't have occurred to anybody at the time that there was something wrong with that. The losing tribe had no moral vocabulary with which to object to this because had they won, they would have slaughtered the other tribe and enslaved the survivors. You see, there were no moral conceptions through which the notion that killing a woman, a non-combatant, uh, or enslaving them was a moral problem. For them, it wasn't. Now, they lived according to various mythologies, again, very different mythologies, of how the universe worked and um, They were different, of course, from the, the gods of the adjoining tribes. And if you were defeated, you were defeated by the gods of the other tribe. And you either abandoned your gods or they were assimilated into the victorious guide, uh, um, tribe. And, and so this was the way in which it worked. Um, you had no way of differentiating in your thinking why a dog wags its tail as against why Egyptians put their dead in these gaily painted caskets. They would simply say, well, the dog wags its tail because that's the way of a dog. And an Egyptian buries their dead that way because, well, that, that's the way of the Egyptians. They, they had no way of knowing what, what the dog is doing the dog is doing by nature, it's the nature of the dog to wag its tail, whereas the Egyptians just made up this convention. It's just a custom they made up uh, to bury their dead that way. So that distinction between nature and custom or nature and convention had not yet been made. Why not? Because they were a pre-philosophical people. I wonder if I should read you just a little report, a contemporaneous account of what was seen. Yeah, okay. This is from Nathaniel Chapman in 1793 about Native Americans up there in the Northwest. Quote, 
And because the Indians were pre pre-philosophical people, just like the Aztecs, pre-philosophical people as well. Okay, Chipman says, among their different tribes, the injuries of an individual are resented as national. And there's a, it's an offense against the whole tribe. The possession of a hunting ground is to them the possession of an empire. These are the sources of frequent wars waged with the most savage ferocity. The butchering and scalping of old men, women, and children, the torturing and burning of prisoners in cold blood with the most shocking circumstances of cruelty are among their pastimes. These are not secret acts of violence. They are by none considered as wrong. They are public transactions performed under what is to them the law of nations. Uh, so universal is the state of war among such people that in almost every language, the same word originally signified both foreigner and enemy. So uh, that's the way the, the tribal mind worked. And it's still observable, by the way, in the tribes that exist today. Uh, they, they still behave that way. I, I, I went to Iraq, and I worked with Iraqis for a couple of years. And one, uh, one sheikh made a pronouncement of some offense against members of his tribe that the only path left open to him was to kill everyone in the offending tribe. Uh, wife, children, animals, kill them all. Because you see, it didn't, there's no individuality in tribal life. You're a member of the tribe. You represent the tribe. Therefore, any member of the tribe can be killed as restitution for what one individual has done. And we don't understand the terrorists who have been killing Americans for the past 20 years in what seemed to be random acts of violence because the terrorists, even though they may be engineers in flying planes, they still live in the uh, pre-Islamic tribal mentality of Arabia. And therefore, we're a member of the American tribe, according to them, you see. Or they call us Romans. You know, they, they, they're, they don't, they think ahistorically. So we're, just as they call the Byzantines for the hundreds of years they were fighting them, Romans, and the Byzantines thought of themselves as Romans. When our troops went over there uh, in 2001, they were considered, well, the, the Romans are bad. It didn't differentiate. Anyway, and so, and so it's okay to, uh, for them to walk in a shopping mart and start killing Americans to avenge some humility uh, that they believe their tribe has suffered the hands of Americans. You see, you get some little idea of a totally alien mentality because we take, as much as we have abused philosophy, everyone kind of breathes it in because it's at the foundation of our civilization. Which I'll get to now. You know, uh, in the pre-Socratics, some of the pre-Socratics, like Heraclitus, maybe Anaximander, observed 
in order in the world. They could apprehend this order with their reason, and they, he thought, well, how could this be? How am I able to understand this natural order? And Heraclitus uh, thought, well, behind it must be a divine intelligence of which this natural order is a manifestation. And as far as we know, uh, he's the first one to have used the Greek word logos to describe this divine intelligence from whom emanated this rational order. And, and you know the word, Greek word logos means reason or word. So this, this rational power uh, behind the world but still in it uh, was accountable for the fact that the world was ordered and that our minds had a means of apprehending the laws of its operation. So Heraclitus said, how, how wonderful this is, so wonderful that we are obliged to live according to the order of logos. Now, when Aristotle came along, he, he refined to a great extent what was meant by natural law. He used the example of an acorn growing into an oak tree. Nowhere along its trajectory will an acorn uh, turn into a giraffe. It, if with the proper cultivation, care, watering soil, it grows into a fully mature oak tree, which is its, one would speak, Aristotle would speak of that as the perfection of the oak tree, of the um, acorn, um, its, its final cause would be reaching that state of perfection which shows most fully what it is. That's what it is and it's why it's not and can't be something else. It's not going to shapeshift into something other than what it is. The Egyptians thought this, the shapeshifting deal. Um, and one would know with this acorn, if it receives sufficient water uh, and nutrients in the soil, it would grow and achieve this state of perfection. Well, those things which helped it, assisted it in doing that, one would call, well, this is good. This is good for the acorn. It's good for the oak tree. In fact, he would say it's natural. It's natural to the oak tree because it assists in its flourishing. And a drought or overly acidic soil, bad for the oak tree would kill it. That would be unnatural, right? So you start seeing a vocabulary of what's natural and unnatural and the fact that the natural represents the good. Now, when it gets to men, uh, we're not plants, though we're subject to various vegetative and animal instincts. Uh, but natural law to us applies to our free will. 
meaning that concerning human beings, natural law means moral law because only we are free to make the choices of the things and ways of life that lead to our perfection or obstinately, obstinately refuse and choose the very things that will uh, corrupt us, prevent us from reaching that state of perfection. And once again, that would be referred to as natural for man to cultivate contemplation of the divine, and it would be unnatural for him to assemble a large pornography collection. Because once again, not only Aristotle, all of them said virtue was the basis for happiness. Yeah, well, it's a, what is the final purpose, the final end of man? The, his final cause is happiness. Happiness. In, in, in what way did Aristotle define happiness? Contemplation of God. Very much the same way Thomas Aquinas defined the end of man. The end of man was to know God, to, be, to contemplate him. Um, which again had as its necessary prerequisite a life of virtue. And so you constantly had before you the choice to choose those things which were uh, virtue or those things that were vice. But what you see here is the key is nature is normative. Because our reason can apprehend the nature, the essences of things, we know what they're for. We know what's good for them, what's bad for them. Therefore, nature is normative. It's no longer the ancient tribal life where you rip the innards of a bird apart and the holy man... Uh, divinizes according to where the uh, the liver is in the bird. You know, the Babylonians had heptoscopy, which uh, was uh, telling the future according to sheep livers. There are many examples in the ancient world of the superstitions by which they lived. Now, all of a sudden, we have... Uh, cause and effect in the natural world, accounting for how things really happen. And um, it's not red dog urine, as the Babylonians thought, is an essential ingredient to make a man happy. So we, you, can, you can map this out now to know what a good life is, what the end of life is, what his final cause is, uh, the necessary means to reach that cause and the happiness that exists as his end. Now, another significant thing for Aristotle is that that end, that knowledge is reached by the philosopher, let's say outside the confines of the city. In other words, this is not a political discovery. It leaves the city itself accountable to these standards of right and wrong, which are normative, which created a huge tension, you see, because the ruler of the city often was tempted by Thrasymachus' definition that right is the rule of the strongest, and since the ruler was the strongest, 
he'd do what he wanted. And to hell with what natural law said, you see. So they weren't too happy about some of the philosophers. And of course, the most famous case in the world was the execution of Socrates in Athens. And his student Aristotle had to flee Athens uh, because they were at a certain point going to do that to him as well. There's that tension, you see, between philosophy and the polis, or the, the ancient city. Uh, but this, this marvelous, uh, Benedict XVI referred to a philosophy as the gift of the Greeks. And it's what broke man out of tribal life. It's what enabled him by understanding what the essence of a human being is uh, to look over to a member of an alien tribe and see that person no longer just by the name of that alien tribe, but say that actually that's another human being who is constituted the same way as I am and whose nature uh, is, such, is so designed that he has the same end as I. And so therefore Aristotle postulated that there was a universal justice, a justice which was true everywhere at all times for all men. You can see again how this threatened sort of the fabric of ancient tribal life uh, because they didn't want to hear about an authority that was higher than itself, than the ruler of the city and the gods that ruled that city with him. Uh, so this very much shook things up. Now, well, Tim, I may hold you to this. I've only gotten through Athens. Quickly, we're going to go through Jerusalem which was the other phenomenon in the ancient world that made an essential contribution to what made the American founding possible. The Jews existed in a sea of polytheism in the Middle East. Whether it was the Akkadians or the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Persians, they were all polytheistic. And there was a general pantheistic view of the world. The world is eternal. It's always been here. Its substance itself must be divine. The world is a god. Um, we, you get that in today's modern in, environmental movements, right? Gaia, Mother Earth. They're just reverting to ancient pagan thinking on this. Well, so the Jews come along and receive a revelation, no, no, there's one God, not many, and that this God is not in the world, as the ancients thought all their gods were in the world. They may be on Mount Olympus, up in the Empyrean, but they're, they're within the universe. They had no conception of anything being outside the universe. And once again, the Jews say, this, you know, we have one God, Yahweh, who is transcendent, who is outside the universe, beyond time and space and matter, but who in his providence acts within his creation 
uh, out of love for his people, the Jews. Now, what does Yahweh do? And then we turn to that book, which again is a, a foundation block for Western civilization, is Genesis and the account of creation. It's interesting that the creation accounts in the uh, adjoining mythologies or cosmologies uh, were always violent. That the world rose um, out of strife. That there was a good demiurge and an evil demiurge and they're fighting it out. And it's only when the good demiurge prevails that this order is manifested, but you know it's tenuous. It's tenuous. It doesn't exist by nature. It could, it could fall back into the general chaos, and so uh, humankind always lives, uh, let's say, apprehensively, and the insurance that this doesn't happen uh, led to a hemorrhage of blood both animal and human in the ancient world, of sacrifices to these gods to placate them so that they would keep the world stable. The Aztecs, you may recall, ripped out a living heart every day and threw the body down the steps of the pyramid because if they didn't, the sun wouldn't rise had to propitiate that God. And then, of course, on high holy days, there were sometimes tens of thousands of hearts ripped out. This was that, you know, uh, Moloch, the child sacrifices in the Middle East. Uh, this was a regular feature. The Jews uh, forbade this despised idolatry, and forbade human sacrifice. But the, the most interesting thing, the most fundamental thing, uh, is in Genesis. God's, the account of God's creation of the world. There's no violence in his creation of the world. He speaks the world into existence. And God said it was his word that constituted reality. So as we go through the various days of creation, we see more of uh, th more things existing and that majestic frame at the end of every day and God saw it was good. And then on the last day, he creates something which is especially good, man. Why? Because he makes man in the image and likeness of God. No surrounding Middle Eastern culture had any such notion that man was made in the image of God. Only the Jews did this. Again, in the Akkadians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, man was created by the gods to be slaves to the gods. That's what man is for. To say he's made in God's image and uh, likeness is, is uh, it's, a, it's a revolutionary revelation. All of a sudden, the integrity of man, the dignity of man, reaches a height 
which it never had in the ancient world because of this image of God in him. And of course, it meant something for the relationship between that man or woman and Yahweh, and it also meant something about how you treat other people who themselves are every bit as much in the image and likeness of God as you are. So there's a certain standard there, kind of decency that you, you would be impelled to observe because of the inviolability of the human person, thanks to this revelation. I would contest and say to you that there is no notion of human rights today or practice of it, no matter how far removed it is from these origins that cannot be accounted for because of Genesis. That they may be very secular, they may not know the Bible, but if they have a sane notion of, of human rights, it owes something to Genesis. Now the other, the other interesting aspect about what the Jews did, are you getting nervous, Father? No, just getting ready to ask a question when you finish this point. We'll, we'll have a second table after dinner. What's for dinner? Okay. Um, so this other unique thing about the Jews as that refrain came uh, after each day of creation and God saw that it was good. Everything he made was good. Matter was good. Uh, again, the... Uh, Adjoining cultures and cosmologies had it quite the other way around. There, there was evil in matter, some said. Matter itself was evil, and light was good, and your body is matter, it's evil, so the Gnostic enterprise is to somehow rejoin the light. I mean, the Aztecs thought when they were ripping out these hearts, these people would, their spark of light in them would go back to the sun is where they belong. But um, this was, again, totally novel to say that all creation was good. <coughs> there, there, was no, there was no evil demiurge contending with a good demiurge. Yahweh is omnipotent. There is no force contending with him that could possibly overturn the order of the universe which he has instituted. This gives the Jews a sense of confidence, a sense of optimism that you don't find in the other cultures which are subject to fate because you're told you were created as a plaything of the gods or as a slave to the gods and you are subject to the fate of the gods. Not much of a foundation within that for free will is there. Ah, but if you're made in the image and likeness of God, there is. Because part of that likeness is your reason. Part of that likeness is your free will. So, by the way, this had a direct impact on the American founding. John Adams said more than once, and he knew uh, the classical literature very well, he also knew Hebrew uh, to read the Old Testament. And 
his praise of the Jews was such that he thought they made a greater contribution to Western civilization than did Athens. Father? We have to be mindful of the time, so I, I want to begin asking the questions that the audience have posed on the themes you're sounding, starting with this. Should those among us who are devoted to identity politics be understood as thinking in a pre-philosophical tribal way? Yes. How, how, if so, how do we reach those people? Uh, well, you arrest them. <laughs> the, but you're right. It is this, this identity politics is a rebarbarization of the human race uh, to incapacitate a person from recognizing another person as a human being. I mean, it's simply astonishing of what, what they are surrendering uh, to follow their agenda. You know, it, it's an indication of how much has been lost and how much needs to be recovered. Um, Speak, I, speaking of recovery. Yes. Even if the best possible conservative candidate should be elected president and his party control both houses of Congress, what could they possibly do to begin repairing our republic? Well, the, yeah, they, first of all, they can undo everything Biden has done. <laughs> uh, they can continue to make uh, court appointments uh, of judges who know that an unborn child is a human being and should have the protections of the 14th Amendment. Uh, what, what you have against this, and I, in an act of vain insanity, went back into the government in December and January as the director of the Voice of America, uh, which, I, which is a position I had held almost 20 years earlier, and saw how bad things are Oh yes, there really is a deep state, and, and the people who go in there, first of all, have to know it's there and how deep it is, and how in complete opposition that deep state is to the kind of agenda we would like to see. So it has to be done by very determined, very tough, very smart uh, people who are willing to make the sacrifice to do this. You know, I had the privilege of knowing uh, Mike Pompeo, and I personally thought he was doing a very good job as Secretary of State. He brought in a cadre of his former military co colleagues. He was a West Point officer, first in his class, had a military career, then a congressional career, a business career, congressional career. And they armed themselves. They had a prayer group in the State Department early each morning they get together to pray. They knew what they were up against and from where their strengths needed to come. Uh, so th they've had these instruments of power in their hands for so long that uh, turning it around is going to be a, a huge job, a very tough job. 
not impossible. Near, it's nearly impossible, but not impossible. I worked for President Reagan for a while, and he did a lot of good, but he always said no political change is going to last or achieve any good unless uh, under, under it is a uh, foundation of spiritual recovery. Always talking about spiritual recovery. Did Catholic political philosophy shape the American founding, and if so, how? Oh, then I can return to my talk. <laughs> I was going to say, boy, I have to telescope this. Uh, in in when the arrival of Christianity, the incarnation, of course, fundamentally changed everything. It's a Jewish religion. Christ is a Jew. Many Jews just didn't know the Messiah had arrived. But he made some uh, startling things, enhanced in incomparable ways this relationship between God and man. You see, as I mentioned in the ancient city, the people had no access to the gods. Only the tribal chieftain had the relationship, or the pharaoh, who himself was divine. But no, no, what we find in Christianity is, is the individual has access to his or her Lord and Savior, and that salvation is reached outside of the state. This was not true of the ancient world, that man's salvation now um, demotes politics in the most serious way in which it has ever been demoted because this salvation is transcendent. It is not under political control and it is lived outside of the confines of the state. So the state now is shrunk to the size at which it always ought, ought to have really have been to only deal with secular matters. And then, of course, the famous passage uh, when uh, Christ asks for a denarius, when he was questioned, is it uh, legal to pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, well, whose image is on this denarius? Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The gospel records the crowd was astonished of course they were astonished. No one had ever said this before. That only some things are Caesar's. Caesar doesn't get everything. Some things are God's. Now, the, the statement acknowledged a legitimacy for the secular ruler. It just said, set confines to that rule. And we know that blossomed most particularly in the Middle Ages with the dual sovereignties of, of sacred and secular. And medieval man began living under dual sovereignties, meaning no one of those two sovereignties had complete control of the person because he was under partial control by the other sovereignty. And in the interstices of the space arose, guess what, freedom. Middle, middle ages man, he was free. Uh, uh, compared to what had preceded him in many ways. And, and can I go on a little about the Middle Ages? 
something that will startle you as it did me as I was working on this book is how the fundamental principles, and then of course you've got Christ speaking of the infinite, ineffable love that God has for each individual person. That each individual person, the bum on the street, the mayor, has as his or her end a supernatural end, sharing in the Trinitarian life of God himself to enter into his divinity. Ancient man could not have imagined such a thing. This was a revolution, that revolutionary teaching that shook up the ancient world quite a bit. And it changed again the way people treat each other. Poor houses, universities, other institutions arose uh, in light of this truth, of this integrity, irreplaceability of the individual person, his worth as an object of the infinite love of God. This, of course, founded a new civilization. Another thing I want to say to you, uh, which is key, as we keep going up through this fulcrum of uh, the primacy of will or the primacy of power, what do we hear at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John? In the beginning was the word, the logos. It's in Greek. St. John uses logos, which again, it means word or reason. So let's keep the word. In the beginning was the logos. The logos was God. The logos was with God. All things came through him as logos. All that exists comes through logos, is spoken by logos. And then what happens? And the word was made flesh. So this divine intelligence that Heraclitus intuited as being behind the order of the world enters into it. What if Heraclitus encountered Logos walking through the door? That's what happened. The other, and, and of course this is confirmation in Revelation about the status of reason, right? Because logos means reason. God introduces himself in the gospel as logos, as reason. And he is incarnate logos uh, when, he, when he comes to this world for his salvific mission. Now, when he taught his disciples to pray, what did he say? He again gave, gave them a revolutionary prayer. It's still revolutionary now. Our Father. What? No ancient man would have presumed to say of God, our Father, because there was an infinite distance between this nothing slavish person and the Almighty. But all of a sudden, through Christ, the relationship becomes familial. Our Father. And as you know, it, the, the, the word um, 
the colloquial, more, the word was more colloquial, uh, perhaps closer to our daddy, our daddy who art in heaven. I wish this, this Kairos could go on world without end, but Kronos reasserts itself. And so I, the last question. But Tim, Tim, you said I had all this. <laughs> he lies. <laughs> if the false anthropology and Erzat's notion of liberty that dominate our culture today do not come from the founding, where did they come from and how did they conquer us? Germany. <laughs> it, um, it, it came via German historicism that was inculcated in our universities uh, by German professors or by American students who went over to Germany to study and that's where they were taught their historicism. So that was the principal source of infection. And if you don't believe there are immutable uh, transcendent truths, but that everything is a product of its time, well, guess what? Times change. And uh, as President Wilson said, uh, this, we no longer understand this um, Declaration of Independence, according to 18th century mores, we have Darwin now. And we know that there's evo Darwinian evolution and we have to adjust the US uh, government and its structures uh, to comply with the, Dar the, the reality of the Darwinian vision of things. And, and, there, and therefore we need this administrative state to manage people. You can see the amount of foresight which went into that because that, of course, is what we now have. Now, I say the other source of infection uh, was uh, Rousseau, the teachings of Rousseau. Across uh, from my house, I live in a lovely cul-de-sac, there's a forest, but there's no forestry. So the place is allowed to just go wild. Uh, there's a macadam path through it, but the poison ivy grows on both sides and almost spills into the path, so you've got to dodge it while you're walking. And my Russian physicist friend said, Bob, these Americans, they don't know how to uh, treat forests. They don't know this is America. I said, no, no, Vladimir, this is not America. This is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You know, the primacy of nature in the wild, uh, that you just, uh, in, in that, uh, it's in that pre-social state and that's the state in which it should be. So our forest is a direct expression of Rousseau. And some of the non-education our children are given is again a reflection of Rousseau's nonsensical educational ideas. Uh, yeah, that's, that's it. Actually, the last chapter in this book is why it went wrong, and it's just as an epilogue to, to suggest and to provoke, because I make the point that what is going wrong here is not because of the things that Patrick Deneen and Michael Hanby say, 
that it, it, we had these radical enlightenment notions at our foundations, we didn't. If, because you're going to be denied hearing this, I have in this book the trail of how the constitutional principles came out of canon law in the Middle Ages, articulating the equality of all people, the requirement of consent in their government, uh, the pact that's created between the people and their ruler, which that ruler must keep if, if he wishes to continue to exercise uh, his rule, and if he doesn't, people have the right to revolution. So they have Thomas Aquinas, clearly speaks about the right to revolution against tyranny. But the key was equality. And if all people are equal, then no one person by nature is suited to rule everyone else. And whatever kind of rule is instituted has to be done through the consent of the people who are ruled. And how can that be done if you've got a lot of people? Through representation. So you select representatives for you to, at some assembly, uh, vote on whatever proposals uh, are there to which then everyone is subject. That, that's generally the way the, the Middle Ages operated, and it was, it was later destroyed. But one of the principal uh, principles of that time had been found in the Justinian Code Quod omnes tangit ab omnibus approbari, which meant what touches all must be approved of by all. What affects all must be approved by all. In Roman private law, it meant if you were the trustee of a piece of land or an overseer for a minor child, you and the other trustee had to agree, all, you both had to agree as to the disposition of that property. You see, it was just private law. It had no political significance. The canonists in the Middle Ages made that the heart of church corporations, which were the first corporations in the world that were voluntarily assembled by its members outside of the control or even the approval of the state. And they ruled themselves according to this principle uh, as St. Dominic in, in the first conclave he gathered, which was in Italy, to get the various Dominican chapters to come together, he said, well, two, two monks from each chapter and you vote to select them. And the vote has to be secret ballot. Then we'll come to our general conclave and uh, votes will be, be taken on things which affect everyone and therefore require the consent of everyone, or well, how many? Of, well, what makes, what's the cutoff? Well, the two-thirds majority, that again came from church councils and it came from the councils that elected the Pope, that you need a two-thirds majority. Um, all of this was in place in the Middle Ages. All the constitutional principles uh, at the time of the American founding were articulated and lived by in the Middle Ages, in the, middle, in the American Revolution in the big way was a return to and a restoration of medieval constitutional principles. It, it's a stunning story. I mean, it, I learned a tremendous amount researching this book. I hadn't expected to find in canon law 
the articulation of these and then how it seeped from the, the spiritual order into the secular order into the early parliaments, again, which used the same principle, uh, quote, omnis tangit, ab omnibus apribari, they used it in the early parliaments. And guess what? Okay, we're in the, the 1770s and you find those preparing for the American Revolution using this exact Latin term, because what it means is no taxation without representation. And that began in the church. So you can draw a straight line. Now, um, because I'm being pressured, <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I have to leave out of here is if things were going so swimmingly in the Middle Ages, well, how come that just didn't continue and go straight to the American founding or we wouldn't have even needed an American founding? And it's because what followed as a result of the Protestant Reformation, all those principles were denied. And that laid the groundwork for the divine right of kings which was not a Catholic teaching. No one in the Middle Ages accepted such a notion as the divine right of kings. That was post-Middle Ages. It was a result of Protestants, as a particularly Luther. And then the secular version of the absolute state in the work of Thomas Hobbes and his Leviathan. Uh, but there was an opposition to this. And it was articulated by the first Anglican theologian Thomas Hooker, Richard Hooker, in the 16th century, who, who wrote a magnificent book restoring uh, Aristotelian and Thomist thought to the Reformation. I mean, it was only in England, but it was very important in England that the destruction that had been occasioned by the Reformation, he partially recovered from it, and that had a huge influence on the American founding, and it had a huge influence on two of the men who were most important and influential in the American founding, Algernon Sidney and uh, John Locke, both of whom, I've got to talk so fast you won't find a way to, both of whom uh, knew the works of the two great Catholic thinkers, uh, Charles Bellarmine um, and Francisco Suarez in Spain. So both Jesuits. Bellarmine was a cardinal. Both of them arose to uh, themselves restate and elaborate on these constitutional principles that all men are created equal. You, I have a section in the book where I have Bellarmine's statements that it has to be with the consent of the government, there's a right to revolution, said things with which you're very familiar. I have Suarez saying the same things. I have Algernon Sidney saying the same thing. Sidney had read Bellarmine, and even though Sidney was Anglican. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the book written by Sir Robert Filmer called Patriarcha, which was an attack on Bellarmine and Sidney because Filmer was the greatest 
a defender of the divine right of kings. And Jefferson's copy is, uh, he's got his you know, pen notations, underlining, and this book contains huge extracts from Bellarmine and Suarez. So Jefferson read Bellarmine and Suarez. Uh, and many of the founders did. They were familiar with it, uh, with his thought. This lineage, you see, it was a shared lineage. It, it preceded the Reformation, and it was continued to be shared by uh, many Protestants as well as Catholics. Uh, and, and that was the bulwark, that was the preservation of those principles that made the American founding possible. So it was a recovery. You know, the British passed in uh, 1766 the Declaratory Act saying that they could rule, Parliament could rule over the colonies in any manner whatsoever without their consent. So it was not so much the divine right of uh, George III, it was the divine right of the British Parliament that said, we now are going to rule you without your consent. And of course, that included taxes without your consent. And that's what convinced the colonists uh, that we're no longer considered human beings because we're rational people whose consent is required in our own government. We've been living this way for 150 years. And uh, you know we, we reject this and by these principles we uh, justify our revolution, as you are so familiar with those in in the Declaration of Independence. And so we conclude with Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> oh, I paused. I shouldn't with, have done with, that. with Thomas Jefferson channeling the Code of Justinian and Robert Bellarmino. Thank you, Robert Riley.